I have said before that this is the most deliberative test that a delegate will ever be called upon to make. Your country is faced with a series of crises. From Cuba, 100 miles off our border, the riots in Tokyo from which our president was forced to return home, in Italy and Tibet and Turkey, the West Berliners looking down the gun barrel. And this is a time when you must select the trustee for you and your children. You must select the voice of leadership who has encountered the trials and the problems of bringing men together, bringing sections together, bringing countries together. Because this is one of our most trying hours. That was Lyndon Johnson back in 1960, accepting the nomination for the vice presidency on the Democratic ticket alongside Kennedy. Johnson, I think, is an ideal way to start off the show because he highlights many of the reasons that a vice president uh, is chosen to be on the ticket. The first kind of big reason is that they bring a geographic advantage to the campaign. Uh, that would, you know, entail that there is an area that the campaign is struggling to connect with and that they know that they need the electoral votes uh, embedded there in order to carry the election. And they expect that in picking this candidate, they can carry those votes, usually because the candidate is from there. And Johnson uh, fits into that category. One of the biggest reasons that LBJ was chosen to be on the ticket was that he uh, could carry Texas in the South, where he was actually from. And that was an area that the Kennedy campaign knew they were struggling to get. They figured that Johnson's choice uh, to be on the ticket could remedy that because he would help them carry the South, where he was very popular. And obviously they were right, because Kennedy went on to win the election. Um, we also see that with uh, Nixon and Eisenhower, right? Nixon chose Eisenhower to be his running mate uh, because the going theory was that, quote, a California would help to win over the Golden State. Nixon it was. It did not matter so much that the pair squabbled. They won 39 out of the 48 states and 55% of the popular vote, end quote, according to The Economist on their, uh, their partnership. Eisenhower, who was originally from Kansas, knew that he needed to carry the West Coast, and the California senator could do just that for him. And thus, Eisenhower chose Nixon to be his running mate. Um, another big reason that we see is that they contrast the presidential candidate's image, and Kennedy, again, uh, and LBJ are great examples of this. Kennedy had served one full term and a little bit of a second in the Senate, and he'd only served three terms in the House. He was a youthful candidate, and while that was one of his strengths, the campaign also was worried that it was going to hurt him in terms of the election. Johnson, on the other hand, had served 12 years in the Senate, he had been the minority and the majority leader, and he had served six terms in the House. Kennedy was a young and certainly electrifying senator from Massachusetts, but the campaign needed to reassure voters that his youth wasn't going to get in the way of his decision-making. And Johnson, who was 55 years old when the 43-year-old Kennedy was elected, gave the campaign the experience to mitigate concerns about Kennedy's lack of it. And so in that way, Johnson also fits in very nicely in terms of contrasting the candidate's image, the presidential candidate's image. Um, we see this dynamic again in 2008, right? Barack Obama was young, and he hadn't even served a full term in office when he got the Democratic nomination for president. They knew that that youth and experience could come back to haunt him, and they needed somebody who could contrast that starkly. Joe Biden had served in the Senate for over 30 years. He was a seasoned politician with serious foreign policy credentials, having sit, uh, sat on the chair for a, uh, the committee there for a long time, I mean. And he was seen much in the same way that the Kennedy-LBJ balance was seen. He was seen as balancing... Uh, the experience on the ticket. But balancing the image just isn't inherently about age and experience. 
uh, the Carter-Mondale ticket provided some important balance. According to the NPR, quote, If Jimmy Carter was an outsider from the South with anti-establishment credentials and no Washington experience, Senator Walter Mondale of Minnesota, a big government liberal and a member of the club in good standing, was the perfect counterbalance. End quote. And so a lot of times we see that in the picking of presidential, uh, in the picking of vice presidential candidates to be on the ticket, a lot of times it has to do very much with balancing out the candidate and balancing out the image of the candidate that is projected onto the voters. Uh, the third big reason would be that they contrast the president's policy expertise. In the 1980 election, the Reagan campaign picked George Herbert Walker Bush because he had a vast foreign policy experience. He was the CIA director. The, uh, at the time, he was the youngest naval aviator in history. He was the ambassador to the United Nations and the chief liaison to China. He had a wealth of foreign policy experience that made up for the former actor and two-term California governor Ronald Reagan's lack of it. George W. Bush, his son, had been the governor of Texas for a little over a term when the 2000 election was coming around. And beyond that, he didn't have the foreign policy credentials to be president. So it's perceived, uh, thus in a large part, that uh, Cheney was brought in order to remedy that. Cheney had been the Secretary of Defense, and, and he was brought in to remedy that lack of foreign policy experience that Bush was perceived, George W. Bush, was perceived as having. And so a lot of times, vice presidents are picked in order to balance out the foreign policy, uh, or balance out the policy expertise of the candidate where uh, your normal candidate would have a very strong expertise in one area, and the campaign feels that they are lacking in another area. Also, uh, vice presidential candidates can be chosen to balance the ticket ideologically. We see this again with Herbert Walker Bush, who was a moderate, and he balanced Reagan's far-right conservative positions. Reagan was perceived as being too far-right for many of the moderate voters in the party, and uh, Herbert Walker Bush was brought on in part to sort of balance that out, and to balance the ticket ideologically, and recapture moderate votes for the campaign. And uh, the fourth kind of, or the fifth kind of big reason would be that they bring a demographic advantage. Now, this one hasn't come too much into play in terms of the vice presidency yet, because no minority, which has been up for grabs, has been big enough to swing the election one way or another. And by that, I mean that the African-American and uh, Latino communities have consistently voted for Democrats. So a vice president has never been chosen to ensure that they are carried. But if Republicans nominate someone like Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush, who poll very high among Hispanic voters, they could call that demographic into play. It would mean Democrats would have to fight for it, and uh, that could entail picking a vice president who could help bring that demographic back to the Democrats. So it all raises the question, uh, paired with that, what does Hillary Clinton have to do in order to win? Hillary Clinton would do well to go for someone who balances her out quite nicely. Uh, and meets a lot of the criteria that was mentioned above. At 69 years old, she would be the second oldest president elected, and a youthful candidate could balance that in terms of in terms of age. In light of new revelations about her email server, most Americans don't trust her. 61% don't trust her, according to the most recent Quinnipiac poll. Uh, and, and her deep Washington dies could hurt her in an election cycle where, so far, outsiders have been dominating. This creates kind of an interesting candidate checklist. Uh, and when we look at who the vice president ought to be in terms of a ticket. And on today's show, we'll look to see what potential candidates meet that criteria. I'm Cole, and this is Political Theory. start off today by talking about Tom Vilsack, uh, who I think is sort of the safe choice of sorts. He was 
the moderate governor of Iowa for eight years, and he has served as the Secretary of Agriculture for the entirety of Obama's presidency. He has close ties to the Clintons, and he's had that for a long time. In fact, he endorsed her back in 2008 after dropping his own campaign for the presidency. Uh, Vilsack was a finalist for Kerry's vice presidential slot back in 2003 when he was the governor of Iowa. And the big advantage that he brings is a geographic one. Vilsack could deliver the Midwest, states like Iowa, Wisconsin, Ohio, where recent polling shows her lose, uh, Clinton losing to most major Republicans. Vilsack uh, still remains popular in the Midwest. In Iowa this year, his approval rating is still around 50%, despite having been out of office for a long time. And Vilsack's nomination to Secretary of Agriculture was met with widespread support from many large agricultural associations that are prominent in those, uh, those agricultural areas. He uh, received support from the Corn Refiners Association, National Grain and Feed Association, the National Farmers Union, and the American Farm Bureau Federation, all of which are prominent and influential groups, especially in prominent agricultural areas. Uh, many areas of the Midwest are, of course. The Midwest has a combined power of 110 electoral votes, and Vilsack's popularity in the region as the vice president could ensure that those votes go to Clinton, bringing a good geographic advantage to the campaign. Vilsack, of course, suffers from many of the same problems that Clinton does. Clinton and Vilsack are both political insiders with years of experience, something that could be to his detriment in an election where voters want a new, fresh, outside face. Vilsack is 64. He's the safe choice for Clinton, and he is your typical politician. He doesn't exceed anywhere. He's not a fantastic speaker or an incredibly electrifying personality, but he isn't likely to make any massive blunders or, or royally screw the campaign over. The Clinton campaign will know what they're getting with Vilsack. Um, you know, the Clinton campaign, if they picked him, they don't risk him overshadowing Clinton or the like. They're just not taking a huge risk there. But the safe choice might not necessarily be the best one, depending on who the GOP nominates. Republicans could pick a candidate who eats away at otherwise safe Democratic strongholds. Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush, if one of them are the nomination, would draw Hispanic voters... Uh, Democrat where the demographic where they both hold poll high. Well, they could draw those voters away from Democrats into their campaign, a, a demographic that's otherwise assumed to be safe for the Democrats. Democrats would have to fight for the Hispanic vote, and if that were the case, they would want to use their vice presidential choice to get them back. If that isn't the case, and if Republicans did nominate another Kasich, or you know, even though it seems unlikely, another Huckabee. Um, they wouldn't, those candidates wouldn't fundamentally change the nature of the election, and Vilsack would be a safe choice for locking up the Midwest while letting Clinton focus on getting other urban votes, uh, where a lot of those minorities are concentrated instead. It was U.S. Senator Tom Harkin who told the Des Moines Register recently, quote, among those who are seriously considering being the Democratic nominee for president, among those who are thinking about who would make a good running mate, Vilsack is right there. End quote. Vilsack would bring the geographic advantage that the Clinton campaign could use, but beyond that, he would be a very typical vice presidential choice. Um, he's not widely known outside of, of the farm belt, but that could be easily remedied. And once he gets onto the national stage, if he proves himself to be a competent campaigner, that wouldn't matter too much. Whether Democrats need a game changer or whether the safe choice is ideal for this election, we'll have to wait and see. But here's Vilsack speaking at the 2012 Democratic National Convention. Last week, we heard folks at the other convention say they wanted to take our country back. But here's what I noticed. They didn't say, back to what? Well, we know what backwards looks like. We know what happened to middle-class families after two tax cuts for people who didn't need them, after deregulation of banking and housing sectors, and the historic recession that followed. And we know how far we've come. But now, let's assume that the Hispanic vote is in play. 
and the Democrats are worried about losing it, and they think they need a game-changer in 2016 to make sure that they have that vote. They could turn to someone like Julian Castro, who is the sort of rising star in the party. The 41-year-old former mayor of San Antonio and now a member of Obama's cabinet has been mentioned quite a bit uh, for the spot. Quote, Now the youngest member of the Obama cabinet is secretary of the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Castro is already seen as an early frontrunner for the coveted spot of Clinton's running mate, end quote, says The Guardian. Castro has time and time again been cited as one of Clinton's top picks for the Veep spot. Uh, Clinton, in response to all of this, said, quote, I'm going to look really hard at him for anything, because that's how good he is, end quote. And consider that rising star in the party, with that comes the electrifying personality in the background that has made him that rising star. And using that personality and background, he could deliver the Hispanic and youth vote for the Democrats. His little political history means he doesn't have any major scandals, which would be the last thing the Clinton campaign would want after uh, months of emails and Benghazi questions. But it's consistently also that lack of political history that is the biggest criticism of him. He entered politics in 2001 when he was elected to the San Antonio City Council. In 2009, he was finally elected mayor, and in 2014, he was appointed the HUD secretary, a relatively fast climb in politics. His HUD tenure has been largely marked by his efforts to get free Wi-Fi into low-income neighborhoods through a project called Connect Home, as well as lowering of mortgage insurance premiums and the expansion of the Housing Choice Voucher Program, which offers vouchers for low-income families, the elderly, and the disabled in the housing market. Bringing a fresh, uh, fresh face doesn't necessarily hurt his chances. Um, it's worth noting the successor candidate is three times less likely to win, and the Obama administration has been getting mixed reviews from the country, so the Clinton campaign will do well to pick sort of a fresh face who's not as associated as she is with the current administration. But it does make him an easy target for the GOP. His youth and experience um, would probably come back to haunt him, right? It was, uh, um, the GOP, for instance, warned of Obama's inexperience in 2008, and they've capitalized on his failures a lot by attributing it to his youth since. Castro could find himself caught into the same trap. He's a much more risky choice than someone like Vilsack, but despite being attacked for his youth, there's the potential reward of securing the youth and Hispanic vote that could boost the Clinton campaign very strongly. Clinton and Castro appeared together most recently at a rally titled Latinos for Clinton. And here's an excerpt from his introduction speech for her there. You know, we're all here today with the hopes and dreams that we carry for our own children and for our nation. I know that's why I'm here. One morning, two or three years ago, Erica and I were getting Karina ready for school. And one of the morning shows was on TV. And footage of the president came on. Now, I am very proud of our president. He's going to go down as one of America's greatest presidents. So I'm so proud of him that that morning I blurted out to Karina, look. There's the president. You can be president one day. But, but right away, she blurted back, that's for boys. And I thought to myself, what in the world? And I told her back, nah, girl. You can be a doctor, you can be a lawyer, you can be an engineer, you can be a teacher, you can be anything you want. I told her, Karina, you can be president too. 
the next person we're going to talk about is Mark Warner, the former Virginia governor and current Virginia senator. And I think when we talk about Mark Warner in the context of the White House, there's a story that has to be told. Um, the story goes that when Mark Warner's parents were visiting him back when he was in college at George Washington University, uh, Mark Warner got his parents two tickets to go do a tour of the White House. And when his dad asked him why he didn't get a ticket for himself, why the, the future senator and governor didn't get a ticket for himself, he replied, I'll see the White House when I'm president. And if all goes well, maybe he in eight years will have that opportunity if he's picked to be on the vice presidential ticket. Uh, the 60-year-old white male former business executive is now the second wealthiest senator. Uh, he's had a prominent business career before turning to politics, and he's one of the candidates that Obama considered for the vice presidency back in 08, though he publicly withdrew himself from that race and chose to run for the Senate instead. He has good bipartisanship and middle-class appeal. It's one, two of his biggest highlights. The economy remains one of the top issues for this election cycle, and Warner could fit nicely into that, especially given his extensive business experience. On this exact subject, the National Review said of him, quote, Warner is considered a political moderate, and he's a multimillionaire, self-made businessman and venture capitalist. His potential role as Clinton's ambassador to the business community on Wall Street, Main Street, and Silicon Valley could yield high rates of return, end quote. Furthermore, Warner proved his electability uh, when he was one of only a few Democratic senators to survive the 2014 congressional massacre, winning his seat by 17,000 votes, which, while not a lot, is more than most Democratic senators that year could say. One skeleton in Warner's closet is uh, something that he ought to be wary of, that is, occurred back in 2014, and it involved Virginia State Senator Philip Puckett. Puckett was a Democrat, and um, Puckett was considering resigning his seat in the Virginia State Senate. Doing so, because it was split 2020, would hand Republicans the majority in the Virginia State Senate. Warner, according to the Washington Post, quote, discussed the possibility of several jobs, including a federal judgeship for the senator's daughter in an effort to dissuade him from quitting the evenly divided state Senate, end quote. Earlier this year, Republicans called for an investigation into Warner's actions in the Ethic Committee, and while no investigation has gained serious traction yet, I think you can be rest assured that Republicans wouldn't hesitate to dramatically expand the scope of that investigation if Warner did become the VP. He would bring that geographic advantage in Virginia, a critical state to win, and he strikes a good balance between being a good speaker while not risking overshadowing Clinton. Here's Warner at the 2008 DNC. Uh, and he's kind of electrifying the crowd, and I think it's a great testament to one of his strengths as a strong communicator. You know, America has never been afraid of the future, and we shouldn't start now. If we choose the right path, if we choose the right path, every one of these challenges is also an opportunity. Look at energy. If we actually got ourselves off foreign oil, we can start to make our country safer, we'll start to solve global warming, and with the right policies within 24 months, we'll be building 100 mile per gallon plug-in hybrid vehicles right here with American technology and American workers. Look at health care. If we bring down costs and actually cover everyone, not only will America be healthier, we'll be more competitive in the global economy. Just think about this. In four months, in just four months, we will have an administration that actually believes in science. And we can again lead the world 
in life-saving and life-changing cures. Think about education. If we recruit a new army of teachers and actually give our schools the resources to meet our highest standards, not only will every child in America be given that fair shot, but the American economy will be given a shot in the arm. And whether they want to be an engineer or an electrician, every kid will be trained for the jobs of the 21st century. Now, the next uh, potential candidate that we're going to talk about is Cory Booker, the 46-year-old senator from New Jersey. Politico reported that the Clinton campaign was considering him for vice president, and he will have been in the Senate for only three years come 2016. He won a Senate seat back in 2013 with a 10-point lead in a poll done back in June. The Public Policy Polling Center found Booker in fourth place in a hypothetical presidential run, which kind of indicates that Booker does have the national popularity, uh, at least on a base level, to be a successful vice presidential candidate. Clinton needs the African-American support to win, and Cory Booker is African-American. She needs that support just like Obama and every other candidate, but while African-Americans turned out in large majorities to vote for Obama, new polls are showing that they might not feel the same way about Clinton. A new Suffolk University and USA Today poll uh, reported a noticeable drop in Clinton's support among blacks, going from just under 75% in July to under 45% in October. And if those trends continue, she'll need a vice presidential candidate who can gain the votes where she has lost them. And Cory Booker, who won a Senate seat with large African-American support as well as huge support from other minorities, according to polling done after the election, could do just that for her. Furthermore, Booker is among the most prolific fundraisers in the Senate. Michael Bloomberg, Steven Spielberg, Reed Hastings, Mark Zuckerberg, J.J. Abrams, and more all contributed to Booker's $17 million campaign. He could be a valuable fundraising asset for the Clinton uh, campaign. But Matthew Hale, who's the associate producer of political science and public affairs at Seton Hall University, doesn't agree that Booker is an ideal choice. He says, quote, I'm not exactly sure what Cory Booker brings to the picture. One of the things people look for in a vice president is that they are qualified to be president. Cory Booker is young, inexperienced, doesn't have the foreign policy experience. I'm not sure he brings that sense of gravitas into, the, into potentially the top seat, end quote. His youth could be a double-edged sword for the Clinton campaign. On the one hand, that youth uh, means inexperience, and it makes for an easy attack against the vice presidential uh, candidate. He's been a senator for two years, not much longer than Obama had when Obama ran for the presidency, and Obama was widely criticized for being too young. Booker could find himself in a worse position. Of course, that lack of foreign policy experience might not matter much, given that where Booker is weak on an issue like foreign policy, Clinton's tenure as Secretary of State makes up for that. We'll have to see. Booker is young, and he's energetic, and that makes him a nice compliment to Clinton. Booker is popular, he's likable, and he's a strong public speaker. Here he is speaking about education funding at the 2012 Democratic National Convention. Our platform and our president make it clear that the most critical investment we can make in a 21st century knowledge-based economy is education. And so, our president has already doubled Pell Grants, raised education standards, invested in research and development at our universities, and early childhood education in our neighborhoods. This is because our platform and our president stated clearly, our nation cannot continue to be the world's number one economy if we aren't committed 
to being the world's number one educator. The last person we're going to talk about today is Tim Kaine, the 57-year-old former governor and current senator from Virginia. Kaine was also shortlisted for Obama's vice presidential choice back in 2008 and was instead put in charge of the Democratic National Committee from 2009 to 2011. Politico reported first that the Clinton campaign was looking at Kaine as a possible VP selection. Kaine is fluent in Spanish. In fact, he was the first senator to ever give a speech in a language other than English on the Senate floor, and he won the African-American vote with 88% support in Virginia. According to the Public Polling Center uh, from 2012, he has deep Democratic roots with both executive and legislative experience, and he challenged with legislation co-sponsored by John McCain, President Obama's authority to declare war. His foreign policy position, which is a tricky issue for many voters, could be ideal in this uh, election. As the Washington Post put it, quote, Tim Kaine is uniquely positioned politically, dovish enough for the anti-war left, but covered on the right by hooking up with the hawkish McCain. Frontrunner Clinton figures to run a more hawkish than dovish Democratic norm, end quote. He has the experience to be vice president, and his positions are very much in line with the party. Virginia is, again, an important state to carry in the election, and he's popular there, having served as governor and senator. Kane, however, was criticized for his tenure as the DNC chairman. Many criticized him for abandoning the previous chair, Howard Dean's 50-state strategy, and again focusing, uh, and instead focusing, I mean, on a few select states with concentrated resources. Kane also refused to criticize Republicans as much as Dean, which many perceived as a lack of passion, and it resulted in the absence of a clear leader in the party, uh, other than Obama, that is. He wasn't a very electrifying or a very exciting chairman. As Newsweek put it, quote, Kane has been virtually absent from the national stage, ceding his role as chief political surrogate to the party and the president to others. I think it's a concern, says one Democratic state party chair. Some Democrats have no idea who our party chairman is, and that is not a good thing, not when we're on the verge of a very tough election, end quote. Although that article was a few years ago, um, that that feeling of Kane's uh, tenure as the DNC chairman hasn't really changed much. Kane doesn't have the, electri the electrifying personality or that attack dog style that Democrats very well could want for this election, especially because Clinton isn't the most electrifying personality. Obama largely overshadowed her given on her speaking ability back in 08. Here's Kane speaking at the 2012 uh, DNC, and I think you'll see that while Kane is by no means a bad public speaker, he just doesn't electrify the crowd as much as many of the other candidates that we heard about today. Here he is. When I was governor during the worst recession since the Great Depression, Virginia maintained one of the lowest unemployment rates in America. We kept our AAA bond rating. We were named the most business-friendly state, best-managed state, best state to raise a child. In Virginia, we cut billions from the state government while making critical investments in schools, roads, and bridges. We work together with Democrats, Republicans, and independents to get results. Now, over the last four years, the GOP pushed ideology and wedge issues. Just last week, they passed a platform demanding privacy for super PACs and denying privacy to women making health care decisions. Meanwhile, Democrats fought for the middle class. We cut taxes for 95% of American families. We, we went from 25 months of job loss to 28 straight months of private sector job growth. The auto industry is back and manufacturers are hiring again. But we know 
we've got more to do. And this fall, there is a real choice. The other side fights to protect subsidies for big oil. But we want to invest in America's small businesses. They want bigger tax cuts for those who need it the least. We want to invest in our communities, roads, bridges, infrastructure that will make us more competitive. They want to slash education and training. We want to invest in our future. Just to be clear, there are plenty of other potential candidates. Thomas Perez, Kamala Harris, Martin O'Malley, Evan Bayh, and Martin Heinrich have all come up as possible choices for the tickets. But the ones that we talked about on the episode today seem to be the major and most likely choices. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, observations, or anything else about the show, please email us at politicaltheorypodcast at gmail.com. That's politicaltheorypodcast at gmail.com. And visit our website, politicaltheorypodcast.com, where you can find links to social media and other pages involving the podcast. I wanted to end today by thanking everyone who's been listening and uh, downloading episodes of the show. I'm incredibly pleased with the support that we've received and all the downloads the episodes have gotten. So to help us continue this growth, it would mean the world if you could go leave a review of the podcast wherever you're listening to it in order to help get the word out and continue the rising trend of our numbers. Thanks so much for listening and be sure to tune in next time.